If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the November 25th, 2019 Thanksgiving Week edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight on Storytellers, I catch up with Massimo Dobrovich, the out Croatian-Italian actor, featured on the Bravo reality show Euros of Hollywood, who's still pursuing his Hollywood dreams. And then Matt and Tim, a former neo-Nazi skinhead, along with the gay victim of his hate crime attack, talk to Steve Pride about forgiveness. And if they can get along, you can cut that Republican uncle a break at the Thanksgiving dinner table. But before all that... We spill the honest tea. Well, Chloe Corcoran, you played our intrepid news gatherer this week. And what tantalizing talking tidbits are you teasing us with today? Well, the song says, if you're gay, then you're gay. And the American Medical Association seems to agree with us. Michael Taylor Gray, they came out this week backing a full ban on conversion therapy for gay and trans people. Who's that? The American Medical Association. The AMA. Yes. Yes, on NBCOut.com, another intrepid news gatherer, Tim Fitzsimmons, one of our favorite journalists here, I think, and some of the news stories that we get on NBCOut.com. And this is from 11-21-19, detailing how the AMA, the American Medical Association, is backing a nationwide conversion therapy ban. And this is based on science, which is refreshing. Yes, a discredited practice of trying to change one's sexual orientation or gender identity. And to say I'm a little tired of this is to say the least. This is part of who we are. And there are just some who refuse to believe that this is intrinsically a part of our DNA. My sexual orientation is I am a cisgendered gay male, and that is not going to change. Nor do I want it to change. Right. We are who we are. And I understand that there are frustrations out there. I think there's a lot of grief on the part of parents and some parents are well-meaning and they want an easier life for their child but in trying to convert their child they're making it much harder the instances of attempted suicide and completed suicide go way up when somebody is subjected to conversion therapy well a september study of 27,000 transgender people found that those who were exposed to these efforts before the age of 10 were four times more likely to report a suicide attempt in their lifetime versus trans people who were never subjected to efforts to change their gender identity or their sexual orientation and gender identity. In this case, these numbers referred to 
gender identity. Absolutely. So that is our transgender youth out there that are being subjected to practices that increase their risk of suicide attempts by four times. That is unbelievable that people would still see this as a credible option for their children. If you love your children, let them be. And I do believe at the end of the day that people do love their children. But unfortunately, this kind of belief is so deeply steeped in fear and misunderstanding, and it's cloaked in religious doctrine. All that together is just, it's just a lethal dose, unfortunately, for, for these young people and for those who, who identify with their sexual orientation that's not quote-unquote straight. And then if you're, for gender orientation, if you don't fit within the lines of cisgendered heterosexual. Right. And parents, I just need you to love your kids unconditionally, please. And with that, we see some of these practices, these beliefs play out in horrific ways. A story came across this week about an attack in New York City in the Bronx in a subway where somebody was attacked with a hammer and pushed onto the subway tracks while the person was yelling homophobic slurs at them. This was at the Fordham Road Station in the Bronx. And this is the second homophobic violent act in New York City in recent weeks, the first of which was detailed back in September in Astoria, Queens. And, you know, I've always said, Chloe, you can't have New York without Queens, not to make light of anything. But you know what? Good Lord. This took place at a restaurant at Pollo Mario on Roosevelt Avenue in a neighborhood frequented by LGBTQ plus people where a group of young men attacked two men of our community. And there are differing accounts as to how the restaurant handled this. The restaurant itself is saying that they tried to break up the fight. Other people are saying that the people who were attacked were asked to finish their food and leave. Wow. (laughs) I can't help but have that reaction. And I always want to turn around and look at the calendar going, what year are we living in? And I want to know that we're moving forward. And these types of attacks speak to a lot of the ways that people are portrayed in that hate speech leads to hate crimes. Hate speech makes space for these actions. And there is a direct correlation between people speaking out violently against us and people experiencing violence on the streets. Now, um, I just want to point out something. And I know that when when we read these stories and we see how the authorities are responding to them, that a lot of this is wrapped up in legalese until such people get caught and are taken through the legal system and are given a trial and charges are brought against and they have the trial and then a jury of their own peers decides guilt or non-guilt in terms of the alleged crimes. But in that first story that we were talking about in the Bronx at the Fordham Road Station, where this 21-year-old male was the victim of this person who was yelling homophobic epithets at, at him and then proceeds to swing a hammer at him and then push him onto the tracks... And then further on in the report, it says that the police are investigating this incident as a possible hate crime. And I just bristle every time I hear that possible hate crime. If you scream the F slur at somebody, push them on the tracks and swing a hammer at them while you're doing it, that is a hate crime. And I I understand there are ways you have to describe it to stay out of trouble. But, man, wouldn't it be nice if people just didn't cause that kind of trouble in the first dang place? I, I, I think there you go. That gets to the root of of how I feel about it. And speaking of causing trouble, let's take a look at South Carolina. (laughs) 
<laughs> South Carolina, well, you're causing trouble again. Once again, South Carolina in the news for causing issues for transgender people. Legislation has been introduced in South Carolina to bar any type of treatment of gender dysphoria for young people up until the age of 18. I believe the quote was something along the lines of, if you can't buy cigarettes and you can't buy alcohol, you shouldn't be able to get a sex change. Yes, somebody under 18, they can't buy cigarettes and alcohol, and so they shouldn't be able to have a sex change. And I wanted to go, and so there. (laughs) (laughs) And that statement, that statement itself is a gross and potentially purposeful misrepresentation of what actually happens with transgender youth. A lot of times they are not put on puberty blockers until 10 to 13. The effects of those are reversible. The job of those puberty blockers is to keep people from developing damaging effects of puberty in the with of going the wrong way um, for somebody who is transgender. And it's a big issue because we're struggling out there, especially our youth. And this will also lead to suicides. This will have a body count. Chloe Corcoran, I'm so grateful for you as our co-host here at Honest Tea. You are such an outspoken and informed member of the transgender community. So when you hear stories like this, when you read stories like this, it hits at home. It really does. It hits home. It's hard to watch our youth struggle. I had a very emotional response to the story about Luna in Texas a few weeks ago. If listeners will recall, that is the young girl, young transgender girl, who is in the middle of a custody battle between her father and her mother. And the father wants to force her into a male identity, which is what she was assigned at birth. And the mother is affirming her care and giving her a shot at life by accepting that this child is transgender and her name is Luna and she is a girl. What can we do to to join forces here? What can we do to to counteract these attempts to criminalize uh, the the steps that we can take uh, to to expand our rights, to give ourselves you know a, a clearer path to being authentically who we are? And in this, in this case. It seems to me that the transgender community of whom you're a vital and, and vibrant part of, Chloe Corcoran, it seems to me that your community in particular, which is part of our greater LGBTQI mm-hmm. plus community, is being targeted as the current other. Every characterization of gay people that was used many years ago is now being used against transgender people. The panic defense the bathroom issues. All of these things are now being used against us in the transgender community. And if you'll watch, you will see that the new efforts by um, groups such as the Anti-Defamation League and trans-exclusionary radical feminists are going to be to try to split up the LGBTQ community into LGB and T. And that is going to be a huge thing to watch out for and something we need to be careful of because we can't do this alone and we need each other. Which is not unlike the divisive nature of what's happening in terms of de- Republican and Democrat here within the United States of this, this, this out, these outside forces and others coming in to try to divide us, to treat each other as, as if we're so different that we can never come together and that one is out to get the other. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Transgender Day of Remembrance was last week. And that is a time when we come together to mourn the lives taken from us. And I won't say lost because they were taken from us brutally by murder in the most case, 
But that doesn't even count the amount of people who have been pushed to suicide, who have never been able to live out their dreams. And you asked a question, what can we do? We need people to be loud. We need people to start fighting that fight with us. What I personally need people to do is to stand up for transgender people when transgender people aren't in the room. Wow. Yes, absolutely. Don't just wait for the incident to happen. Don't just wait for somebody to be there. Speak up every single time, no matter who is in the room, no matter if it's convenient or if it's inconvenient, no matter if you're rushing to get, stop, take that moment because that moment could change somebody's mind. That moment could save a life. That moment, could, that pause can make a difference. And in are we seeing change? We are seeing change. And your home, is it your home state of New York? Is it is New York, yes. Your home state of New York recently banned the use of gay and trans panic defenses, which you just mentioned, uh, preventing assailants from claiming in court that a fear of LGBTQ plus people motivated them to violence. So that no longer in New York state can you use that as a defense. And I need people to be cognizant of the fact <clears throat> that this is a little bit of a unique story because in so many other states you can say i didn't know they were transgender so i murdered them and that's a defense and you can get off of a murder because of that which is not unlike the twinkie defense that was used in the harvey milk case can you talk a little bit about that well you know the 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 fellow councilman who had, who killed, who ended up murdering Harvey Milk, claimed that he got all hopped up on, on junk food, in particular Twinkies, and that sugar rush heightened his sense of fear and panic, and that's what caused him to murder not only the mayor, but Harvey Milk. And that's and I we talked right before the show. I said, that's not like somebody in an airplane saying, I have a fear of heights, so that's why I killed everybody on the plane. Right. It just doesn't add up. So listeners, I would ask you to open your lives and your homes to transgender people. And speaking of opening up homes, Michael Taylor Gray, we see a wonderful story coming out of Wisconsin this week. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, There was a wonderful couple in Wisconsin that saw a need for our homeless youth, particularly the homeless youth in the LGBTQI plus community. And they pulled their resources together and did an outreach as well and got the funds to purchase a home in their community. They said, what are we doing in our own backyard? What is happening here in our own yard? I think NBC, uh, MSNBC or NBC did uh, an actual, uh, I saw this on on the TV, not just on the interwebs, on the TV, exactly. And they opened up a home to LGBTQI plus youth so that they have a place to go, a place to call home and a place to to start their life all over. You know, because a lot of these, I think 30 to 40% of homeless youth are in our community, and it's up to us to do something about it. And bravo to this community for coming together in fundraising efforts. Thank you, Wisconsin, for doing something like this. It is important to have a home. It is important. I, I, I don't know how to explain this to people who would be against this, how important it is to have a safe place to live, a safe place to be, a soft pillow to rest your head, a warm bowl of soup, whatever the case may be. It can make the difference between life and death. Yeah, I didn't come out until I was in college my freshman year. I had a dorm. I had a place to rest my head. So it was safe for me, relatively so, mm-hmm. to do that then. If I had done that in junior high or high school when a lot of these kids today are doing that, are feeling this need to to not live a, a lie and just be authentically themselves, and they're taking that brave step, and then the reaction to of their family 
is to throw them on the streets. Right. We, as their brothers and sisters in our community, we have to step it up and do what's right. We all need to uplift each other. Speaking of that, I want to take a moment to shout out our allies, the parents of murdered Matthew Shepard, who showed up to help with the fundraising effort for the original home. They did. They were a big part of helping uh, to raise funds. I think that for their organization, they needed to raise uh, $70,000, and Judy and Dennis showed up, and they ended up raising $70,722, something like that. So they just surpassed their goal. And, uh, yeah, we have our allies are a big part of our Thanksgiving this season. So Judy and Dennis, if you're out there listening, thank you so much for being amazing allies. And we are grateful to the ongoing, living, loving spirit of Matthew. I couldn't have said it better. And I want to say thank you to the Wisconsin community as well for coming together to pull this off to the tune of actually opening up a second home. Wow. Well, talk so much to be thankful for. There really is. And Michael Taylor Gray, I am thankful for you and all the work that we get to do together on this radio station. Chloe Corcoran, I couldn't have said it better. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everybody. Eat as much as you want, kids. And that's The Honest Tea. Walt Whitman's Comrades, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. During Walt Whitman's volunteer work tending the wounded Civil War soldiers, he became attached to many. Two in particular stole Whitman's heart, Lou Brown and Thomas Sawyer. Brown and Sawyer had become friends in the hospital. In a letter to Sawyer, Whitman implores, My love you have in life or death forever. I don't know how you feel about it, but it is the wish of my heart to have your friendship, and also that you should come safe out of this war. We should come together again in some place where we could make our living and be true comrades and never be separated while life lasts. And take Lou Brown, too, and never separate from him. Sawyer did, in fact, survive the war, but he never responded to Whitman's invitation. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Brian Smith. This is Judy Shepard, author of The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie, and A World Transformed. And you are listening to I Am Are You. I am are you. I am are you. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. In Facing Fear, an Academy Award-nominated short documentary film, a former neo-Nazi skinhead and the gay victim of his hate crime attack meet by chance after 25 years. Only to embark on a journey of forgiveness that challenges both to grapple with their beliefs and fears, eventually leading to an improbable friendship. Steve Pride reports. You have got to be taught to hate and fear. Day after day, year after year. Hello, this is Tim Zoll, a former racist skinhead. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. Hello, I am Matthew Boger. 
You've got to be carefully taught. Tell me your story. When I was 13 years old, I was thrown out of my house by my mom when I identified as being gay. Forced to live on the streets for four and a half years. About seven or eight months while I was living on the streets of Los Angeles in Plummer Park in West Hollywood. One night I was the victim of 10 or 12 neo-Nazi punks who beat me in an alley, left me there for dead. I'm assuming believed they had killed me. 26 years later, after a long career doing something else, I went to manage the Museum of Tolerance, which I still do, and befriended a former neo-Nazi who turned out to have been one of the guys that were in the alley that night. Tell me your story, your side. Um, hmm. Basically, I grew up in the East San Gabriel Valley area in a predominantly Anglo neighborhood. And when I was very young, my brother was shot by an African-American man. He did survive, but of course that left me with uh, fear of minorities and resentment and things of that nature. When I got into my teen years, I was angry, young, suburban kid, got involved with the hardcore punk scene here in L.A. You know, violence was at the core of what we were doing. And I was uh, what they called a Nazi punk. So, you know, uh, the punk scene was predominantly violent at that time anyhow. And the Nazi punks took things a little bit further. After that, I went on to get involved with organized hate groups. I was fairly high up on the food chain. I was director of operations, recruitment, and propaganda for the White Aryan Resistance and, and Tom Metzger. Made a change in my life. Uh, in my late 20s, early 30s, when I became a parent and I grew a conscience all of a sudden. I think it was hiding there the whole time, but I did grow a conscience and I ended up at the Museum of Tolerance uh, a couple years afterwards. And I've been there ever since. I've been there for 12 years now. What actually got me going to initially go to the Museum of Tolerance was I had a friend who was a former racist skinhead who worked at the Museum of Tolerance, and he left, which opened the door for me. And so I've been there for, for 12 years. Well, take me back to the, your first encounter with Matthew. Mm -hmm. How old were you? 17. And what did you think of gay people? At that time, it was a mixture of fear, um, not understanding, anger, territorial things going on, because also back in those days, you had the LAPD, you had the gay community, and you had the punk rockers in the Hollywood area, and we were clashing. And anybody who would get into our way when we were on a rampage stood the chance of getting hurt. This particular evening, it happened to be Matthew and his friends. And we had left a nightclub where we had been hassled by the police on the way to the place where the attack took place. We did stop several times to get out of the car and slap people around and be big and macho and tough. And then by the time we had gotten to Okie Dogs, which was the name of the, the hamburger stand where the uh, attack took place, somebody shouted, let's kill the faggots. And it sounded like a good idea. And I partook in the violence. And that was not uncommon for me. It made me feel good. It made me feel tough. It made me feel like I was in control. It made me feel like I had power. And obviously, I graduated to bigger and better, or badder, depending on your perspective, things later on in life. Were you angry? Was it hate? It was hate. It was frustration. It was not feeling like I fit in. I don't believe that there's anything exclusive 
about people who get involved with hate groups in comparison with, say, a gang or any sort of violent, radical subculture or lifestyle. I think that's a, a major misconception. A lot of the problems are the same are the same causes, whether it's family problems, whether it's uh, you know daddy problems, whether it's uh, socioeconomic. You know, I could have become a, a drug addict, an alcoholic, a gang member, any of the above. However, because of my upbringing and because of my ethnicity and because of, I believe, especially my brother being shot by an African-American man and surviving, it was a natural sort of thing for me. I took years and years and years of German in junior high school. For some reason, I was, uh, I don't know, uh, led in that direction. I was intrigued by the whole Nazi thing. Matthew, what do you remember of him that night? Well, I only remember one thing about Tim, and that was his boot. Um, I the, the memory of his boot was the one that kicked me in the forehead that sort of left the scar that's on there now. That was sort of the one that stands out in my mind. The last memory of that night of, before I went unconscious was watching the 10 or 12 guys kind of high-five each other and seemed to be very sense of bravado and, and proud of what they had done. Those are the memories that stick out the most. And... How did you know who it was when you met again? Well, I didn't recognize him physically. Totally different look in person. We actually worked together for several months. We sort of became work acquaintances, friends talking every week when he would come in to do his presentation. The way I knew who he was was when we had a conversation. We were sitting there talking, and the conversation went kind of back to where, where we grew up, where we hung out, what we did. You know, it's telling him that I was a street kid. And I don't remember the exact words, but I believe he had said something along the lines of, we used to hang out at Okie Dogs as well until this one night where it had gotten really violent. That's when I knew who I was sitting across from because nobody knew what happened in that alley but myself and the people that carried out the attack. And what year was that? 1980. It was very shortly after I was thrown out. I was thrown out in 1979. And obviously that was the worst incident, but were there other incidents living on the street in Hollywood in the 80s? Not violent attacks. There were, you know, there was a constant victimization of children out there who, you know, there was no way to get around that or to avoid it because I was this little 13 and 14-year-old trying to survive. So the victimization was different. It wasn't necessarily hate. It was other things that went on on the streets. But those also took place as well. And how did it change you? What was the aftermath of that? Well, hmm. <laughs> I think after I got off the street, I mean, yeah, I was a tough kid with a foul mouth and had an attitude problem and resentment and abandonment issues. And most people understand after I explain it, I had a resentment against the gay community because those victimizations came from other gay men and sort of had to spend 17 years consistently in therapy to end up where I am today. What do you want people to take away from your stories? <laughs> I, you know, it's one of those things where the possibility to change and to forgive, everybody has that ability to do that, whether they search with inside themselves. Forgiveness actually is that process which then sets you free from the incident without letting the other person be less accountable, or it sets you free from the incident the moment that defines you so that you can then redefine yourself and move forward. That moment had defined a lot of my life and had defined in a way of fear. So I lived sort of in this place of fear of certain things that came from that night. They could be little things, people with bald heads, you know, certain areas of town. And there was also an anger that was sort of inside and a resentment that just kind of hung there. When I realized that the possibility of letting those things go through the process of forgiveness, I decided to embark on that journey and see where it led me. 
And one of the best examples I have of somebody who could not forgive was when Tim and I were in the Men's Central Jail last week doing this talk. There was a, a gentleman who angrily and vehemently discussed this guy who had raped him when he was 15 years old. And he could never forgive him. Yeah. And he goes, and I'll never even approach the idea. I hate him. And I looked right at him and I simply said, you hear the anger in your voice? You hear that venom that's coming out of your mouth? I said, what if you had a way of getting rid of that anger but not letting them off the hook? He then at the end said that he would then start to look into forgiving that person. And Tim, when you realized that this was the same person, what went through your mind? Uh, shock at first, a little bit of numbness. You know, I had been at the Museum of Tolerance for a while. I had never had to deal with victims of any of my past behaviors on a personal level. I mean, although I had been charged with hate crimes prior to hate crime laws being in effect, it was the first time I had to face-to-face -face deal with my past. And, and it was difficult. It was, and it still is, an ongoing process. I think one of the hardest things that I've dealt with out of this whole thing is guilt, shame, self-hatred, a lot of those type of things. There was days when I couldn't even look in the mirror without saying, you're a piece of crud. And when I would get up in the morning, I wouldn't want to go do our presentations that we did. However, I put one foot in front of the other one and did it. And the reason I did it is because it's healing. It heals me, it heals others, and it shows others that they can change. And I usually walk away from the experience feeling positive. Sometimes not, but again, it is an ongoing process. Could you have forgiven him? If somebody had done to me what I did to Matthew, I would hope that I would have the manhood, the strength to be able to to forgive. I don't know if I would be able to. I really, really don't. I hope I would because I know what it feels like to have that anger within you. And it's it's like a festering infection that can explode at any time. And it's not a nice way to live. I lived it for many, many years with that anger and resentment within me. And once I was able to release that, it made me into a different person as a result. And, and I feel freer as a result. And how has forgiveness helped you? How has forgiveness helped me? Um, well, I know that, um, for example, if if there's something going on, if I have a resentment against somebody, if somebody has, I believe, treated me in a wrong manner, I have to let it go. You have to let it go. If I don't let it go, I haven't taken care of my serenity, my sanity, my peace of mind, my happiness in life. The longer I hold on to that sort of stuff, the worse it gets. So I recommend it. Are you friends? We are. People ask, how do you define your friendship? It's more familial than it is like that friendship where you go and hang out and have dinner. And it's more, you know, like family stuff. You know, it's like I think of him as a family member. But we are friends. We do drive each other crazy a lot. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a conversation with Tim Zale and Matthew Boger. Their presentation, From Hate to Hope, is at the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles on the first Sunday of every month and a short documentary about the duo called Facing Fear 
produced, written, and directed by Jason Cohen, won the Audience Award at Outfest 2013. Find the film's website at facingfearmovie.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. It flies in the face of all your pride. It moves away the mad inside. It's always anger's own worst enemy. Even when the jury and the judge say you got a right to hold a grudge, it's the whisper in your ear saying set it free. Chloe, there is one love you can always count on. And it's something writer Mark Doty shares in his poem, New Dog. Jimmy and Tony can't keep Dino, their cocker spaniel. Tony's too sick. The daily walks more pressure than pleasure. One more obligation that can't be met. And though we already have a dog, Wally wants to adopt. Wants something small and golden to sleep next to him and lick his face. He's paralyzed from the waist down, whatever's ruining him moving upward, and we don't know how much longer he'll be able to pet a dog. How many men want another attachment, just as they're leaving the world? Wally sits up nights and says, I'd like some lizards, a talking bird, some fish, a little rat. So after I drive to Jimmy and Tony's in the village, and they meet me at the door and say, we can't go through with it, we can't give up our dog, I drive to the shelter just to look, and there is Bo, bounding and practically boundless, one brass concatenation of tongue and tail, unmediated energy, too big, wild, perfect. He not only licks Wally's face, but bathes every irreplaceable inch of his head. And though Wally can no longer feed himself, he can lift his hand and bring it to rest on the rough gilt flanks when they are, for a moment, still. I have never seen a touch so deliberate. It isn't about grasping. The hand itself seems almost blurred now, softened, though tentative only because so much will must be summoned, such attention brought to the work, which is all he is now, this gesture toward the restless splendor, the unruly, the golden, the animal, the new. Chloe Corcoran, let me tell you something. Tell me. If you want to know what unconditional love is, have a dog in your life. I am an unapologetic dog lover. I think they are some of the most amazing animals in the world. I would give anything to have a dog right now. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Walt Whitman Gets Fired, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Starting in the 1950s, as a result of McCarthy-area hysteria, homosexuals were purged from employment within the federal government. But with crusaders like Frank Kameny and Bruce Scott fighting back against the Civil Service Commission's regulations, Those regulations became more inclusive in 1975. The first known federal employee to fall victim to anti-gay prejudice was poet Walt Whitman. On June 30, 1865, Secretary of the Interior James Harlan fired Whitman, who was serving as a clerk in the Indian office. Harlan had become livid over the overtly homoerotic verses within Whitman's book of poetry, Leaves of Grass. Luckily, Whitman had a friend in high places, J. Hubley Ashton, who got him a job the very next day in the Attorney General's office. 
The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at the studios in WRIR Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Brian Smith. Hello, I'm Florian Klein. I am the creator of Shooting Star, a revealing new musical, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's oldest LGBT plus radio show, broadcasting out loud and proud since 1974. Happy Thanksgiving This grudge can't last forever Stole my land So eat some turkey while it's still warm Stole my land Cause I've been here a while and you've been here a while And together we can live in peace So let's forget the past and all have a laugh While I chop down the rest of your trees You stole my Your selfish plan Killing anyone who's tanned You stole my land Destroyed the trees and the sea and the sand You just stole, stole my land Stole, 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 stole my land You stole my land I like meat when it's darker Stole my land With stuffing and cranberries inside We'll share this smorgasbord together Stole my land I bet we both like pumpkin pie You came to the west with your germs and your death Brutalizing every woman and man Killed everyone in sight Cause you thought it's alright Now you're doing the same to this land Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. On tonight's Storytellers, out actor Massimo Dobrovich. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI plus community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. I am in the studio today with Massimo Dobrovich. Would you tell us a little bit about your background, where you came from, and how you got to Hollywood today? Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You know, I came here in 2003. I was 18 years old. In L.A. and Hollywood was my first home away from home. So I came here right out of high school, and I enrolled in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts at Hollywood campus on La Brea. I now teach there as well as an instructor, and it's so wonderful to go back after 13 years that I graduated from there to go back and really give back to new perspective professional actors my insights from Hollywood and how they can succeed as well. You know, when I graduated from the American Academy, maybe there were six, seven countries. I mean, I was the only actor that enrolled from Italy. There was maybe two or three actors from the UK, one actor from Denmark. And that's about it. You know, we were very few international students in 2003. And to have over 40 countries represented here with us in Hollywood, it's outstanding because it really shows uh, how much Hollywood it is, an international place. It really welcomes you, everybody. Uh, and, you know, it's really run on a philosophy of a united world, how all the actors are equal and no matter where you come from, no matter where your background is, no matter where your sexual orientation or political views or religion is, doesn't matter. Um, we are here 
to make great art and to make really outstanding art. Speaking of that, that all-inclusiveness of what you're, how you're describing the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, what brings you here today on IMRU is not just the fact that you're a professional actor, but you're part of our LGBTQI plus community. Where in that landscape do you identify? I think I always considered myself since I grew up a minority within a minority because I am half Italian and half Croatian. My mom is Italian. My dad is Croatian. I grew up in Italy, but I was born in Croatia and on the border. You know, on the border on, between Italy and Croatia, we are all Italian and Croatians, and we all have dual citizenships. It was really kind of already a minority because I was living within the Italian minority in Croatia in a region that used to belong to Italy. And then after the Second World War, Italy gave this territory to ex-Yugoslavia, which is now Croatia. So we were always considered a minority in that country. And then plus, you already considered a national minority. And then I was also considered an LGBTQI plus minority as well. So I felt like I was a minority within a minority. And I had to, you know, stand up for myself and really go and grab the world. I always felt like this fire, this rage inside me, you know. And maybe the, the fact that I was a minority within a minority gave me that push, that, that extra in, intensity that I needed to really be focused in life and really achieve the goals that I want. So I think that played a big role for me, absolutely and how I identify myself and what my values are as a human being. If both of us walk into a casting office, I'm going to be seen a certain way and you're going to be seen a certain way. That's just the reality of how casting works. How did the industry respond to you and how did they respond to you once you came out? What you're saying is really interesting uh, because I didn't do my coming out until 2016, so three years ago. And so I got to Hollywood in 2003. So it was, was like, I know, 13 years that I was in the closet, basically. You know, yes, I took a break for three years from Hollywood, maybe two and a half to three years when I was doing a soap in Italy, but I was also no out. And honestly, until 2016, 2017, I might be wrong, but I didn't hear of any a screen actor that made a coming out in Italy, honestly. So I don't know if I'm the first or one of the first ones, because Italy is such a Catholic country where really we have the Vatican plays a big part in our country of who we are, you know, and the Catholic mentality that we all have in Italy because of the Vatican, because of the church. And especially me, you know, I grew up most of my life in Rome, right next to the Vatican. I think that my family responded great and they were amazing supporters every day of my life. And this was such a, a blessing for me, really to have a, such a family like this that really support me in everything I've done in my life. And this is really a huge blessing, like a miracle. But on the other hand, I feel that sometimes religion can play a big part in you coming out or not coming out in a country that is really Catholic. So I did, I really wanted to do my coming out and I was really proud of that. However, I have to say that while I, when I was going to castings for 13 years here in Hollywood, but everywhere in the world, in Italy, you know, in Spain, in Croatia, doesn't matter. I worked all over the world, you know, thank God. It's, even in Australia, I was getting all really like the bad guy, the stray rose, the Italian mafia, the Russian mafia, because I speak five languages. So I could play the Russian, I could play the Italian, I could be the Spanish guy, you know, which is great um, in acting when you can speak a lot of languages and act fluent in all these languages, it's it's an advantage for you because you can, you know, you can satisfy a bigger piece of the pie. Um, but however, it, it was interesting because for 13 years I didn't come out and then I couldn't live a fake life anymore because I'm just 
not a fake person. I consider myself not a fake person. The way you see me, this is the way I am. You know, I don't put masks on. I don't, uh, you know, pretend to be something I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm like this, you know, real, uh, as you see me. So, I, and I, this was really, really burning inside of me and really, I was not happy and satisfied, you know, to live a fake life. You know, that doesn't make sense to me, to my personality, to who I am. And it was really destroying me psychologically, you know. And um, yes, I, you know, I went to the therapist and this and that, and this really helped me. And then I decided to make coming out, even if I was the first, you know, screen actor, working screen actor on a soap or on a TV show or on a movie in Italy that was doing his coming out. And I was fine. What was the next step for you? I'm very persistent. Now, after my you know, t- new TV show on Amazon, uh, Age of the Living Dead came out, and, and I'm in all, I have a principal role, and I have a really like, you know, straight role. You know, like I'm, a, I'm a king of all vampires. And so I think that's kind of reconsidered. And then I have a new TV show where I play an Italian military, you know, in love with Stella Warren. And, you know, and we're in love, and uh, I, you know, I'm a pretty military guy in Italy. Uh, and it's called uh, The Rising. I do a lot of horror movies, and I love doing horror because I'm born on Halloween, so, you know, it's kind of part of who I am as a person, and I love that genre. Uh, I love doing everything, you know. After you come out, some of the first roles that you get after that were florists, were wedding planners, and were designers. What was that first role that sort of reminded the industry that you have a breadth and a depth to you as an actor? What was that project again? Age of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. It's uh, on Amazon Prime. It's an Amazon miniseries. It's like a horror miniseries. So when you got this role, tell us about that role and how you approached that audition and went into that audition, because this is very different now than what you had experienced after coming out. Yeah, and you know, after this TV show came out, I think that kind of, I started getting auditions more for like even action movies and, and no, the auditions I was getting before my coming out. It really took a settlement, you know, of, you know, kind of things to fall into place. Slowly, auditions, meetings, which, you know, I think as an actor, I mean, it's acting and that your personal life should not matter. It should matter your ability to act, you know, on screen or on in theater, whatever it is, and it's it's an art, you know, it's like painting or pottery or photography. Acting is also an art, and it should be considered like that. And as an artist, I think that they should see what is on screen. You know, if we do a movie or a TV show, or it should be just uh, a motion picture or a TV show, which is also an art form. Our personal life should not matter to who we portray on screen. You're an artist. We are artists like everybody else. But, you know, the thing is, I feel that Age of the Living Dead was a meeting with two great uh, show creators, Simon Phillips and Paul Tanner. They saw me in another movie I did, also prior to my coming out, Nocturna. We had a great time in New Orleans. We shot another vampire movie. It was good. They saw me in there, and that was playing a vampire. They really liked me as a vampire there, and they sent me the script, which is a huge script, and because we shot like six episodes in a very short amount of time, you know, maybe two, three weeks or so. Um, but I love, you know, I love the fast pace of television. Everything is faster than film. I met with them and, you know, we did a reading and everything and they thought I was good for this role and uh, I was very happy to perform it and we shot it at DC stages in downtown LA, which was great. Finally, the show is out and it's doing really well on Amazon and uh, I, sh- you know, I suggest everybody should watch, especially the vampire fans because uh, it's really cool. I like a new take, an innovative take on vampires. You know, and I feel that I'm starting all over again, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm starting all over again, uh, no matter what my personal life is, you know, just as an artist, as an actor and, you know, my ability to act. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers on IMRU. And you're listening to my interview with Massimo Dobrovich.
American audiences in the television landscape would have seen you first, probably if they're familiar with Massimo, they would have seen you on the Bravo series, Euros of Hollywood. Tell us about that journey for those nine episodes. Um, Years of Hollywood was a great experience. It was my first experience after coming back from Italy. So I took that two and a half, three years break from Hollywood when I went back home and I was lucky enough to do some soap operas in Italy and some TV shows. And after I was done, you know, on the TV shows, I decided to come back to Hollywood. And uh, I was really fortunate and lucky that this Bravo show came along as soon as I came back. And I thought it was going to be a fun experience, you know. And I was never opposed of doing a reality show because I always thought, you know, I don't think it's a reality. I think it's a documentary about a heightened version of myself. So I, I took it as an acting role, as an acting practice. As artists, we're all weird. So I saw an art form in that as well. I thought, you know, maybe if I play in this show a heightened version of myself, you know, it's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. You know, I'm going to bring some, you know, happiness. And, you know, I wanted to make like fun. Like I wanted to make like a European version of Saturday Night Live meet fame. This was my concept in my head of my character on that show. You know, I went with that uh, artistic inspiration inside that journey. And, you know, and I had a lot of fun. I'm, I met a lot of great people. It was a great show. Yes, the, the not coming out was bothering me because uh, on one side, I had, you know, people from my team that was advising me not to come out. Uh, on the other side, I had the Bravo uh, production, which were trying to really push me to come out on the show. And I was just not ready. Maybe, I, you know, I was not ready. Maybe I was not mature enough. You know, I was 27 years old. You know, I'm 35 now. So that played a big role. And, you know, but we decided that if we were going to get a second season, which we didn't get, I was going to come out on the second season of the show. So the second season didn't happen, but I still came out. <laughs> I still came out. <laughs> that didn't stop you. That didn't it. stop me to come out. Yes. Did it help my acting career? No. Did it hurt my acting career? No. It was an experience... To itself, you know, I, I wanted just to do a, experience a different art form. Like I told you, I took it as an artistic inspiration and I had lost so much fun and it was great. I'm really thankful because a lot of people still remember me from the show, you know. It was a nice experience and I loved working. You've given me a gift today because <laughs> you've expanded my view and my perspective on reality series and looking at it as a documentary of a heightened version of yourself. I think that's a brilliant way and a, a wonderful acting-centric approach to that experience. So kudos to you. For that. I think I think I think that, that's wonderful. Now let's let's fast forward from that experience. You're not only acting; you're also a teacher at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Does your being an openly gay actor in your field? Is that a topic of conversation amongst your students? Is that a part of the journey, a part of, of something that you share about yourself as they go into this, this experience of embarking on a professional acting career? Usually not, because at the academy, we have some, you know, code of conduct, how you have to conduct yourself. And the academy is different than universities and colleges, because we have some really strict academic uh, rules that we all have to follow, faculty and the students. So we strictly concentrate on the craft. Just on the craft, you know, we don't, there is no talking about personal or orientation, beliefs, political, nothing of that. We just strictly concentrate in all the subjects we offer at the academy on the craft of that particular subject, which means we as instructors are there to serve the students to become, you know, crafts worker of acting. 
We have a career development week. We do in that week. We all instructors bring in a lot of producers and casting directors and directors and agents and managers from the industry. And during those weeks, uh, there are development weeks where you can develop yourself as an actor to, in a professional way. And during that week, yes, maybe we discuss, you know, like how that affects on your career, the LGBTQ or, you know, or a political view or, or, or a religion thing. Or, you know, during those weeks, yes, where we bring industry professionals in and then we discuss this. But during the semesters, when we have lessons and exams and stuff, we concentrate strictly on the craft of acting. Those moments were perhaps discussions about how our sexuality can affect or can impact how we're seen within the entertainment industry and how do we use that, how do we incorporate that, how do we react to that. When we invite managers and agents from the industry to come in as guest teachers or guest speakers at the academy, so then we elaborated that because then the people that are really working professionals in the industry can tell to the new students which are graduating and they're going to be tomorrow the new professional actor out there in Hollywood, how does that going to affect their careers? So the managers, the agents, the casting directors, the producers from the industry come in during those weeks. They don't teach there. They come in just as guests, teachers for a week or so. And then during those weeks, they have the opportunity to ask and to elaborate these discussions. Did that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So you continue to be on quite a life-revealing journey here through your craft, through your personal journey as a gay man within the LGBTQI plus landscape. What do you want your legacy to be as an actor? And what do you want Massimo's legacy to be? And are those separate or are they intertwined? I studied the United World Colleges, which is a UN organization, you know, the United Nations Colleges. And, and so I come from a belief that uh, it's all about giving back. I do a lot of volunteering. I love volunteering and create uh, opportunities into places for people that are less fortunate than us, you know, create theater programs in refugee camps or, theater, you know, theater or, or art program or cinema program in third world countries where maybe they don't have the opportunity to study arts or really to create art when it doesn't exist. This is really what I am all about because I believe that, you know, we never know when the next, uh, you know, Meryl Streep or the next huge artist or Andy Warhol or whoever, you know, one of these big art genius is going to come from. If we don't, I strongly believe that each country in this world, we should be able to give the opportunity to their citizens, to their new generations, to the, to the kids that are coming up, the opportunity to study whatever they want, whatever they want, you know. And, you know, unfortunately, not in all countries you can study whatever you want. So really create art and being educated about art where it doesn't exist. So you are kind of like another Dolly Levi from Hello, Dolly, <laughs> encouraging young things to grow. <laughs> I, I guess we can call it like so that. So <laughs> when, when perhaps the next Is incarnation it? of Hello, Dolly can star Massimo <laughs> Dobovich, encouraging young things to grow. It's wonderful that you have that not only an entrepreneurial spirit about you, but you have a very philanthropic spirit about you. And I think that's the greatest gift we can give ourselves and our LGBTQI plus community is to give back from what we've been given and to encourage others to go even further than what we exactly. have, where we have gone. We look forward to seeing you continue to blossom <laughs> and Thank using you. your life experience to grow because you have a lot of joy. You have yeah. a really joyful spirit, which is really, really enthralling, I think. You've got a, you've got a great spirit. 
tell us who you are and where we can find out more about you, because we're going to be curious. Yes, it's Massimo Dobrovic, M-A-S-S-I-M-O-D-O-B-R-O-V-I-C. My website, it's www.massimodobrovic.com. Also on Twitter, at Dobrovic Massimo, Instagram, at Massimo Dobrovic, and Facebook, the same thing, Massimo Dobrovic. I'm on all social media, and you can find me there, absolutely. You can see all about his burgeoning career on uh, IMDb. You have a nice listing on Wikipedia as well. <laughs> so you're all, he's all, you cannot not find him online. So just get to the interwebs and you'll find everything you want to know about Massimo. But tune in to IMRU to get another perspective. Thank you for joining us today. And it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU on KPFK Radio, and you've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and director of distribution, Ann Sparkle, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, a social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI plus community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good Good night. night. And happy Thanksgiving.